This is Future Health, a podcast on trends in the patient journey, what to expect in the next three to five years. The podcast is produced by the Advertising Research Foundation's Pharma Council, whose mission is to identify marketing and research challenges in the pharma industry and develop strategies to deal with them. I'm Jay Matlin, the director of the ARF Council Program. On this episode, we're going to catch up with two of our favorite future health guests, Dr. Maura Scott and Dr. Martin Mende. Dr. Scott is a marketing professor and Dr. Mende is a professor of business administration. Both of them are at Florida State University's College of Business Department of Marketing. This delightful couple first joined us about two years ago on episode five, to discuss their visions for the future of patient experiences in the technoverse. We invited them back to discuss their recent research on stigma in healthcare. Maura and Martin, thank you for joining us again. We're so delighted to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for uh, having us. It's always a pleasure to get to see you, Jay. So we're talking about healthcare conditions that are stigmatized. What makes a health condition stigmatized? Yeah, and in our research, we have had the privilege of working with a healthcare company and with physicians to identify a wide range of different health conditions. In mm-hmm. fact, some of our studies, we've looked at over 80 different conditions. And oh. some of the, the things that you might expect are the case with uh, health stigma, that is mental health conditions tend to... Okay to experience uh, relatively greater stigma. Health conditions that are related to sexual health tend to be perceived with greater stigma. Uh, But then there are also broad categorizations that can cause a health condition to experience stigma. For example, you know, to the extent that the condition is relatively more visible, this can heighten uh, stigma to the extent that it is perceived to be controllable, meaning that there's the perception that the individual could have prevented the condition. So we see this come up sometimes with obesity. Other factors that can influence stigma are perceptions of contagion. So when a health condition is perceived as contagious, that can also create a stigma for the patient. What makes a certain healthcare category become stigmatized or has the potential to be stigmatized? I think there is this distinction between self-stigma and other stigma. Yeah. Uh, let's start with the other stigma. It's when uh, some person I'm interacting with uh, perceives me differently based on whatever that attribute is and starts to treat me differently. And okay. when I, say, I mean any other person, right? This is basically the definition of how the attribute leads to different perceptions and then different behaviors. People are treated differently, which ultimately we call discrimination, of course. Mm. And I think healthcare organizations just need to have that on the radar, that these things can happen and unfortunately often do happen. Uh, Sometimes they are related to health conditions. Sometimes they are just part of the person that is the patient. So... But why is it then that companies should be concerned about this? Does it does it affect patient journeys in some way? There certainly does, uh, because one of the things that from our work with various healthcare organizations that has been emergent is that 
we want patients to comply with the care recommendations that the physician has laid out. Mm-hmm. So in order for that patient to comply with uh, the recommendations in terms of coming back for another visit, following the treatment plan in terms of uh, taking their prescriptions, staying in the hospital if they are in the hospital and need to continue, engaging with other resources to try to take an active role in their care. All of these types of activities require the patient to feel comfortable with approaching and engaging in uh, being involved in their health care. If that patient is experiencing stigma, then the patient may withdraw or may feel uh, less comfortable engaging. And this matters to companies because when patients aren't engaging, when they aren't doing those preventative activities to either prevent or treat their current condition, then that condition can grow into something worse, grow into something more expensive for uh, the healthcare system. And so part of uh, having patients engage has to do with them, you know, just addressing the healthcare problem sooner, but it also is a cost containment concern, which uh, both outcomes are important to healthcare organizations. Well, let me ask you this then. In previous episodes, particularly episode 10, we've talked about patient segmentation in healthcare marketing. But don't customers with stigmatized conditions just want the same messages as everyone else? So that that's a great question. So on one hand, of course, people who are experiencing stigmatized health conditions, you know, HIV as a you know, sexually uh, transmitted uh, health condition or maybe some mental health condition. They want those same unifying treatments. They want to be treated with dignity. They want to be treated with compassion. So in that way, they absolutely want to be treated like everyone else. At the same time, these patients have different needs. These patients are going into this oftentimes knowing that what they're struggling with from a health standpoint uh, is also stigmatized. And based on that, they may be reluctant to engage. And so the messages that these patients receive to signal to them that this is going to be a safe environment where they are not going to be negatively evaluated, where uh, they are going to be welcome has to be a little different. And in some of our research that was published in the Journal of Marketing Research, this paper is called Marketing Through the Eyes of the Stigmatized. What we found in that research is that when patients have stigmatized conditions, they're far more responsive to marketing messages, inviting them to engage with their healthcare community when those messages are coming from other people who share the condition through oh. entering a safe space. So they want to know that other patients have navigated these waters safely, that the people that they might encounter are going to treat them with dignity. So while some of those basic needs are the same, how they are communicated and how they are delivered might need to be different. Well, that's very interesting because we recently had an episode of Future Health in which we discussed crowdsourced healthcare. 
Do you think that this trend, which was identified with with uh, Generation Z more than any others, do you think that that could help to destigmatize the health conditions that you talked about? I absolutely do. I think it is already happening. I think just when we consider online forums, right? Mm -hmm. There is, in my opinion, uh, a version of crowdsourcing it. And that is exactly to what Maura just said. The point, if I decide to join such a community, right? That is a benefit because other consumers are out there that crowdsource the healthcare experience and journey for me. But at the same time, I might be a little hesitant if I feel I'm being stigmatized or potentially stigmatized to go in. Yet, this is exactly the the platform for me to engage with other people who really understand my journey uh-huh. experience right who literally walk in my shoes and so this is the company that we worked with uh, for that journal of marketing research that Maura just mentioned is actually a company that has hosts online patient forums and so i think this is going to be the platform for crowdsourcing in the future. Mm-hmm. I believe that we start to see us uh, in part driven by resource risk constraints in the medical field that we might see uh, group visits with medical teams. So where uh. Uh, providers meet with small groups of patients that have similar conditions and they learn from the provider, but also with and from each other. So I do, uh. I am optimistic about th- where this is going. Granted, that I think service organizations understand the complexities that come when you introduce the crowd, right? Which means interactions and then um, potential stigmatization comes into the equation. Okay, so what is the connection that you've found between healthcare stigma and risk-taking? So one of the studies that we conducted presented participants who were experiencing relatively higher health stigma with a range of different alternatives to treat their condition. And one of the things that we found is that as that stigma increased uh, or that perceived stigma, that felt stigma by the individual, that individual was willing to take riskier solutions, meaning it would be willing to, you know, take an invasive procedure over something less invasive to try to treat the condition, which signals this sort of sense of urgency and almost desperation to move out of that stigmatized health state. Um, and to me, this is important because it really underscores the patient journey and the pain that this that patients with stigmatized conditions are going through above and beyond the health condition itself, but the emotional toll that Mm. can can take uh, on patients. And from a healthcare provider standpoint, I think this presents maybe a broader challenge in terms of, you know, making sure that as a provider, he or she is uh, presenting the full portfolio of risks in a compelling way so that that patient can make careful and informed decisions about their care. And, and I think t- just to add one more thought, I think more broadly, this is also a challenge for us as marketing educators and researchers and marketing practitioners, frankly, to be responsible and ethical. Because I mean, of course, there are vulnerabilities in certain consumer profiles and segments that you could exploit 
they are more risk-taking, they're willing to spend more money. Uh, but I think this is where the ethical dimension should kick in and, and uh, service providers really need to be responsible in guiding patients when they educate them about potential treatments uh, that have risks and financial implications. Well, um, getting back to what can be and has been done to overcome health-related stigma, you've also examined the role of technology. So what can you tell us about what you found in that research on the role of technology? We feel that technology can be a platform for many, many good developments. And so we extended the research in the Journal of Marketing Research with a paper that came out in Journal of Service Research. And there we explore the role of AI. Mm -hmm. The idea is the same. How can we use AI to be more inclusive, right? And so we extended this idea of why don't we have a service provider that shares a stigmatized attribute? So what we've studied was a consumer that wants to get in better shape, better health, and wants to join a fitness club. And for that consumer uh, to join, she, because we focused on weight stigma, which is empirical evidence suggests much more serious for women. Um, so we, we recruited a panel of female consumers and we asked them to imagine joining a gym. And for that procedure of joining, you upload a photo of yourself and height and weight measures, which of course allows the computation of BMI, body mass index. And then we uh, manipulated that to be either consumer to be normal weight or overweight. And then we matched this with an avatar, with an AI that the gym provides in response to what the consumer has provided in terms of the information about herself. And that avatar was either normal weight or overweight, right? And so then we, we looked at whether the matching of maybe, because homophily, this notion that I appreciate people who are similar to me more than people who are different from me, would suggest that an overweight consumer would then be more comfortable with a fitness coach that also is more overweight. We drew on this movement about a plus size fitness coach. What we found, however, was that this principle of homophily did not translate to the avatar, regardless of whether a consumer was normal weight or overweight, they still prefer the normal weight avatar. Huh. And we feel that there might be two explanations that help shed light on that. Okay. One is that consumers with another human, they understand like, look, you're walking in my shoes. You can relate to my experience in right. real. Right. And AI cannot do that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that is one piece. The other piece, and we didn't test this empirically, that is follow-up research, but we also suspect that it might be offensive if I understand that the company matches me uh. with overweight avatar based on the information I provided, right? So you, you make yeah. the inference that there's a company making the decision to show me my trainer yeah. who is overweight because I'm overweight. And so that's like in reinforcing the stigma in a way. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. So what are considerations for healthcare organizations when they consider how to approach using AI to communicate with individuals coping with different types of health conditions, some of which may carry stigma? I mean, of course, from a managerial point of view, one of the promises of technology and AI is, is cost. So in other words, efficiency, 
But we would encourage based on our work to also consider effectiveness, right? Our work focusing on stigma would suggest the first step for companies is to have stigma on their radar. Mm-hmm. And there are, of course, thought-leading uh, organizations that do that. They understand that stigma occurs even from service providers, right? Even doctors have been found to treat patients differently based on perceived stigmatization. So that piece is not that new. It's serious, but it's not that new. Our work, I think, adds that healthcare organizations also need to understand the potential threat that other consumers in crowdsourcing settings, for example, are perceived to be a source of stigmatization. So having that on the radar is, I think, step one. And then step two is to say, based on understanding that, how can we tailor the customer experience for segments that include people who might be vulnerable to stigmatization? We need to create safe spaces, or at the very least, we should give consumers a choice, right? Maybe some people actually have no problem and they don't think it's a big deal. So they can have a choice to interact with one form of the avatar. Let's say I'm okay with having an overweight avatar fitness coach. I enjoy that's fun, but maybe other consumers don't. And so they should have a choice, right? So give consumers a choice. And then the last thing is, speaking of giving uh, consumers a choice, I do think that sometimes technology can actually have advantages in terms of not being discriminating over humans. So there's interesting research done about how consumers who approach a healthcare uh, provider with STDs, uh, sexual transmitted diseases that are highly stigmatized, Actually, the findings suggest that they prefer to interact with a machine rather than a human. Mm-hmm. Why? Machines don't judge, presumably. Mm-hmm. And so there is, of course, this interesting uh, yin and yang, if you wish, where sometimes it's better to have a human, sometimes it's better to have a machine. And one thing I would add to that is, you know, as we think about as marketing scholars and as marketing managers, things like product portfolios. You know, we also must manage customer perception of what does it mean to receive service from technology versus human? So while we're trying to approach these cost savings, we don't want patients who may already be stigmatized to feel that getting the technological solution is sort of like for the second class citizens and getting Mm. face to face is more like the premium offer. Because of course, we see that if you think about with an airline and, you know, if you can call in and get to a person with no waiting, that is premium relative to more of a self-service technology type of option, which is sometimes positioned as a lower tier alternative. So this would be another consideration that um, firms need to think about as they roll out uh, technology-based solutions to try to navigate the needs of patients with uh, stigmatized healthcare challenges. That sounds really paradoxical because on the one hand, you found in your research that there may be some stigmatized conditions in which an AI non-human provider would be preferable because of the absence of any perceptions of being judged. 
But at the same time, if that is what folks with that condition are offered, they may feel that they're being shunted to a second tier alternative. Yeah, and and I, but I think this is exactly where this importance of giving consumers a choice comes in, okay. and having uh, both options accessible to you makes the difference, uh, right? Okay. You can choose, and and this is of course also where where the classical marketing tools come into play. You need to explain to consumers why technology is used and might be available to them or by human service providers are used. Many in one of our studies that we, we don't talk about in detail today, we found that consumers' patients are much more open to being served from a robotic team, a human and a robot provider, once they understand the superior capabilities of a robot over a human in certain areas, like analytics, right? Analytical thinking, uh, running analyses, a robot is far superior to humans. Once a healthcare organization explains the rationale for why they're using that robot, patients were fine with it. Mm-hmm. If they're not explained why this robot is there, then they make their own inferences and they might not always be as positive. So what do you think the future holds as we consider the intersection of healthcare, AI, and consumers in- encountering stigma? Yeah. So I, I think we're going into an exciting era of hyper-personalization. Mm. I think the frequency of personalization, the breadth of personalization, and the depth of personalization will continue to increase. And while I recognize there are concerns related to privacy and and these things, I also think, in parallel, there are enormous opportunities. For example, we we will have, organizations will have much better data about Mm -hmm. consumers and what they prefer, right? What the customer satisfaction surveys, all sorts of data like that. And they can be combined with actual customer behaviors. So for example, uh, pills will be including microsensors that can send a signal of like, yeah, that patient took the pill today. So so this is actually embedded in the pill itself is a sensor that- Yes, that actually can 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 send a signal that, that tells the provider whether or not it's been it's been consumed. That's where we're going, right? So so okay. this technology that is being explored for these kind of tests, and so we will be able to much better understand the behavior of patients, maybe much better than they themselves are able to report, right? Because I mean. If, if I ask you, Jay, did you take a medicine? Let's say you, would, you were to take any medicine. Did you take your pills three weeks ago? I couldn't tell you, right? <laughs> I don't know if you could. Um, and so I think sometimes we reach the limits of self-reported customer data and it's much better yeah. to have objective indications. And then we combine that with other biological data about our customers, like biological data that are tracked from implants, right? And when we combine all these data together, we will have a much better platform to personalize the service experience for our consumers. And with that comes also the opportunity to provide them a safe haven if they wish, but also maybe to even avoid certain interactions for them to come into the office in the first place. Because we find that the technology can make sure that they have 
their prescriptions updated, they take their medicine, and that might reduce the number of actual physical interactions they need to have, which is cost beneficial and also avoids a platform for stigmatization. So I would argue that could be one form of a win-win situation. Oh, would you have anything to add to that, Maura? Yeah, and I, I think what's exciting about that is, you know, there are these segments of patients that experience stigma that we are kind of bottom of the pyramid, you know, so individuals who are unhoused, um, individuals who are addicted to drugs, these are folks that are coming through the healthcare system and are a lot of times using you know, our, the hospitals, and because they don't have a home, they can't be tracked consistently. There's no sort of like address to follow up with them to make sure they're taking their medication. And so perhaps these technological solutions where, you know, you can monitor, you know, the extent to which someone is able to sort of uh, keep up with their medication might be a path forward in containing costs uh, to serve populations that, you know, are sort of outside of the norms of, of what we might think about, but that do uh, have a significant impact on uh, the resources used in the healthcare system. So in your view, um, we're entering an era of hyperpersonalization, which could help to address problems of stigmatization in healthcare. Does that, that sound about right? Yes. So, so, so based on what you've observed in your research then, can you have a sense of how this is going to unfold? What do you think this problem will look like in two or three years? So technology is no magic bullet, right? I, th I think we've seen this in the past and this, this does not change right now and does not change in the next five or 10 years. But I think it gives us a platform especially as AI continues to get better and continues to evolve. I mean, we've seen, of course, an evolution that is hard to get your head around sometimes. And with that, I can imagine that artificial service providers will increasingly be more difficult to distinguish from human service providers, ah. especially if we're talking online interactions, right? And I mean, we learned through the pandemic that many things can be done online that we thought 10 years ago are absolutely required to be person to person in the same space. Mm. So with that, imagine service providers that can shift their appearance in seconds, right? A virtual doctor could look one way for me and maybe match my funny German accent and look another way for Mara, just from appointment to appointment. If you, if you think metaphorically as the doctor switches rooms between patients, the doctor also switches physical appearance voice, language, interaction style, because AI will be able to just from screening, for example, our faces, will be able to infer my emotional state. So it will oh. say, Martin looks stressed. Martin talks as if he's stressed. There is anxiety there. I need to calm down the patient, right? And that would determine how the AI interacts with that patient in that moment. And that is real time, right? And that, of course, again, would be combined with other data we have about this patient, Martin. And the next time I go in, I experience the result of the aggregated data about me. So I think this is where we're going. And with that comes also the piece 
that I think the technology will be able to better understand me as a whole person. So in, in research, we call that intersectionality. So it's not just the focal patient is obese, but the AI will also be able to say the observed patient is obese, but it's also a female of a certain ethnicity or racial profile with that education, and it builds the whole profile together. We are now joined by Anna Bradfield, a brand strategist and a member of the Era Pharma Council. Anna has a couple of questions for Martin Mora. Anna? So you talked a lot about intersectionality, and I think that's so important in when you're dealing with stigma. Do you think that there's any way that technology can really help to prioritize the stigma that needs to be dealt with, particularly in a patient, you know, that is coming in with multiple issues? That That is one of the biggest challenges uh, for us as researchers, and I'm sure for professionals. Again, I think I would point to the far superior analytical skills that technology can have in the moment. So let's just say the human and robot or AI team are about to interact with a certain patient of a certain intersectional profile. The technology can guide the doctor in how to approach this patient, in just recognizing the intersectionality of potential stigmata. And I think that can guide us in better dealing with it. Of course, there's also a pure medical dimension about which I have no knowledge. So I'm not going to talk about the medical relevance of being of a certain age and obese and of a certain ethnicity, but there are data that can be pulled. And I think from the customer's perspective, a very, very important piece is to signal that they understand me as the individual that I am. None of us want to be treated as like case number X and Z and get the standard treatment. It is going to be vital that human AI teams or AI in itself recognize and explicitly recognize, I mean with that, the individual that sits across them. And I think that would be uh, an important first step to address the intersectionality. Amazing. And then my other question was, you talked about once the patient is already at the doctor's office, right, and how AI can help, but often stigmatization affects under already underserved populations. Do you have any perspective on how in the future, you know, AI or technology could potentially help further almost further down the funnel, you know, to actually help get those stigmatized populations better help? Yeah, I, I think that this uh, challenge of just lack of access to technology is, is a big question. And I know that at least uh, with some partner organizations that uh, we've been working with, there have been rollouts of mobile healthcare stations and so some of those mobile solutions can, of course, bring the technology to the patient uh, when the patient doesn't have access to technology. And I think that's one promising uh, path forward that merits research to understand how to deliver a solution like that, because you're bringing technology to a patient who doesn't have a lot of experience and access with technology. So I think the presentation of that type of solution may be different than 
a patient who's coming in and having this sort of hobotic uh, experience in the the healthcare uh, facility. I think there is also an opportunity for for old school marketing. Uh, We've worked also with an addiction center in Latin America. And so that focused on drugs and alcohol. And from interviewing them, what we learned is the fact that these some of these counselors are addicts themselves reduces a lot of this initial hesitation to reach out, right? For fear of being judged, for fear of being not understood. And the second piece from that uh, was old school word of mouth, right? So if you can spread through your patients, that I think regardless of what technology we look at, word of mouth will still play a massive role. If we can spread the word that this addiction center has therapists that are former addicts themselves and that an ex-patient recommends to someone in need, that I think will also be a massive a step to reduce barriers. And I mean, technology can play a role, but it doesn't have to be. And that is the bigger point of like, I don't think everything needs to change. I think it will be a combination of human dimensions and technological dimensions. Well, thank you, Maura. Martin, where do you see progress in the next couple of years? Are there are there changes that you see happening that uh, you think are going to improve the healthcare stigmatization problem? As you hopefully can tell, I'm an optimist. And I think through the painful experience of the pandemic, we have learned about resilience and uh, human ingenuity and flexibility in, in adapting. And although the, the horrendous loss of human life and health was horrible, we also learned to do things in different ways. Uh, to develop solutions in much faster time than any of us had anticipated. And so to me, the combination of human ingenuity with technological strengths that that technology has in certain areas over humans, and then combining those two, right? So I look at the future as human technology teams, where part of it, where the human is stronger, for now this, I would argue, is interpersonal bonding, interpersonal social skills. Those are still stronger on the human level. Combining that with the analytical brain power of technology or sometimes physical strength, right? I mean, in certain medical settings, physical strengths like lifting a patient is actually a health risk for medical staff themselves. So I, this is where I see the future going. It's going to be a combination of human strengths mitigating the human weaknesses through technology. And that to me is the magical combination to improve customer experience in healthcare and hopefully also stigmatization. Maura, do you have any final thoughts to leave us with? We are very much committed to trying to, through research, through teaching, through service, advance the vision that marketing can be a force for good and can help contribute positively and meaningfully to society. We're, we're excited about that future. Dr. Maura Scott is a marketing professor and Dr. Martin Menda is a professor of business administration, both at Florida State University's College of Business Department of Marketing. To hear about their research on patient experiences in the technoverse, Check out future health episode number five. 
I'm Jay Matlin. Thank you for joining us on Future Health. This has been Future Health, a podcast on trends in the patient journey in the next three to five years. If you would like to learn more about the ARF Council program, please visit our website, thearf.org backslash communities backslash and click on councils. You can also follow the Advertising Research Foundation on Facebook or on X at the underscore ARF. Our producer is Monique Nazareth, and our theme music was written by Danielle Bruno. Please tune in again to Future Health from the ARF Pharma Council. I'm Jay Matlin.